0: Nathan, this is episode 66 of The Nathan Seawood Show.
1: The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.
0: Welcome. hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Thanks for joining as always. Thanks for all your great feedback on the last few episodes. I've just got to uh, Berlin and Germany. I've been on a sailing trip with six other incredible entrepreneurs in Greece over the last week and it was awesome. Like I felt the most on purpose I've ever felt just leading those people sailing, adventuring, having deep conversations and deep connection. It was just a a really beautiful week. So super excited to do more. Our next adventure is coming up in Norway. It's going to be on October 16th. So if you're interested in that, drop me a direct message and we can figure out if you're a right fit for that adventure. This week on the show, I've got uh, my friend Tyler Gage joining me. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm excited to chat with you. You are a, a serial entrepreneur. I think you just sold another business not that long ago. And also you have this project where you share lessons from the Amazon jungle to help people find more purpose in their business and their lives. So uh, super excited to have you here. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks, man. I've, uh, things are good around here. I haven't been sailing in any beautiful islands in the last week, but everything's, everything's fine
0: yeah it was cool. Like there was a moment where I was like, "Wow, this is work now. like work involves sailing with cool people and just having cool conversations. It was awesome. You've done it right, you've done it right? Yeah, yeah, it feels good. So, yeah, by the way of a little bit of background, uh, I know you uh, started getting interested in the Amazon jungle and some of the teachings when you were you know young around nineteen. but what kind of led you to dive a little bit deeper into that that work? Getting down there was definitely a circuitous journey. I think
1: in retrospect, a lot of people paint my picture as, oh, Tyler had this perfectly clear vision and stormed out of the Amazon, came out with this leaf and started this business. And the reality was absolutely nothing like that. It was a lot of following curiosities and trying to fill holes where a lot of what got me down there was struggling with anxiety and depression. I played soccer in college and felt like a lot of things in life materially were going extremely well. was brought up in a really fortunate setting and felt like since my early teenage years, there was this deeper curiosity. And whether it was a fascination with lucid dreaming, um, or peak performance in athletics, it just felt like there were these other aspects to what I probably now call the human spirit that I wasn't exposed to that suburban America wasn't a uh, coursing with opportunities to learn about deeper parts of myself, sadly. So through a bunch of reading ended up Well, originally through athletics, I read about a man named Mark Allen, who's the six time Hawaii Ironman champion, most accomplished triathlete of all time. And he originally ran the Ironman a few times, couldn't win, and then started training with a shaman in Mexico and won the Ironman. And he's very clear that the techniques and practices he learned to channel deeper parts of his mind and spirit are what enabled him to sort of crack that last layer of performance. Wow, that's so cool. So for me, that's sort of athletics to spirituality bridge, like the pragmatism of it definitely called me and has been a major threat of what sustained me studying a lot of these shamanic traditions was things that seem very fanciful and blowing smoke and waving feathers that can just be like, oh, it's a nice like cultural practice that they do for, you know, societal security and reinforcement, blah, blah, anthropological BS. Um, I actually found it all to be very practical. And there was a lot of um, very rigorous study and what I call clinical attention to relating to plants and using plants for different medicinal purposes. So that's a bit of the roundabout way of what got me down there and what caught my interest.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, still, I think, you know, most people maybe don't come to that realization until later in life, like you were 19 when you were kid that it's like depression or, you know, struggle often leads us to explore different things, but you kind of went all the way with it.
1: Yeah, it's something um, I've read, uh, there's a beautiful poet, David White, who talks about how what a lot of us call depression is essentially a feeling of being lost. Hmm. And that the way that he frames it, which resonates a lot with, I think, some of the indigenous thinking just around what it means to be lost or how we sort of challenge edges of comfort or certainty, is this idea that there's a certain privilege of feeling lost. And of course, any of us you who know, struggled with sort of feeling particularly lost or more severe depression, anxiety, those can be very daunting edges to come up against. And at the same time, there's a lot of that feeling of fundamental dissatisfaction that's a basic communication that something here is not right there's mm. something else that i want there's something else that a part of my animal a deeper part of my soul is is needing that is not being served right now and there's a certain privilege of having through whatever circumstances that pop up to the surface and us needing to find a new route a new footstep um some other way of engaging to touch whatever that is
0: yeah yeah because we have like one of my big missions is to end male suicide in new zealand in particular and uh, it seems like suicide, in particular, male suicide is getting a little bit more attention, not still not front and center, but it's on the rise in most major Western countries. So there is uh, there is an issue. We do have a mental health crisis, right?
1: Yeah, no, I, I laud you for that work. It's critical. And I think the more that we can all find ways to catch some of those, even little ways that we sort of just repress whatever is we feel, whatever is we really want, that if Stacked super high can get to really critical edges, and I think having opportunities and even just the reminder from people to to not shy away from those parts of ourselves that feel like, even through struggle, that something's missing, and that there are ways to lean into those edges, even if the path doesn't seem clear. Which, in my experience, the path almost never seems clear. Yeah. Uh, even the word "path" is kind of a, a misnomer. Um, yeah. yeah. So that 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 edge is really something that's always always fascinated me, and I found a lot of both personal support. And just an understanding of that struggle in the Amazonian spiritual traditions. One of the sayings, it's actually a Native American saying that I love is they say that white man medicine makes you feel good and then it makes you feel bad. And that red man medicine makes you feel bad and then it makes you feel good. Mm, So, Fundamental philosophy is that it's through, again, feelings of being lost, challenge, struggle, sickness sometimes, that that's the portal. That's like the guardian of purpose. Of meaning of deeper fulfillment and that the recipe doesn't work the other way unless you're taking just like a superficial let's just let's make it feel okay for yeah, a let's second let's
0: numb ourselves out for a bit
1: and then the pit's going to come afterwards so um, a lot of practical tools and ways i learned of engaging that as more of an operating philosophy but i found it so helpful just to remember that and then uh, later as a businessman and entrepreneur when the name of the game is getting punched in the face on a daily basis for the most part remembering that the game is it's a contact sport. It's one where you're leaning into complete uncertainty and so much chaos and lack of clarity on a daily basis that it can be, you know, the immediate reaction is often, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong? As opposed to, oh, this is the game. This is exactly what's supposed to be happening. Understanding that gives me a certain piece from which I can then reflect, get support and and find the right path through.
0: Yeah. Entrepreneurship to me seems to be, that's the the biggest challenge, especially if you've come from a corporate job is Uh, embracing uncertainty and actually your job as the entrepreneur is to be with the uncertainty and like figure out the path to use your language and that can kind of be uncomfortable so we're like grasping for systems or grasping for someone that's done it before when you know entrepreneurship maybe by definition is doing stuff that hasn't been done before
1: absolutely yeah and that's where a lot of my work revolves around the synthesis between entrepreneurship and amazonian shamanism which to most people seems like a completely bizarre. uh,
0: (laughs) Tenuous link.
1: Yeah, tenuous link. But for me, if you think about the textbook definition of entrepreneurship, literally the textbook definition is translating something that is a dream, does not exist or exists in the ethers of nowhere, and making that real in the 3D. That's not like a fanciful description. So the literal definition of entrepreneurship, an entrepreneur takes something which is unseen and makes it seen. They take a dream and they make it reality. That's the game. It's not a fanciful description of the game. That's what we as entrepreneurs do is we take, Mm. we're in charge of that translation process, which for thousands and thousands of years would be something that could be considered mythic. You know, we're tapping into parts of ourselves that can perceive and relate to subtle layers of life. And we're figuring out how do we relate to those, understand those, and then steward them through into the 3d world of everyone else. And that, for 70,000 years has been considered a shamanic art. There are systems around the world and ways that people relate to that specific human activity and ways that I think we can learn from those practices for this modern day uh, brutality and struggle of entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah, because it's become, you know, something like ayahuasca has become a bit of a uh, Silicon Valley go-to kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, How do you see it? Do you still use it yourself? Like, Do you still regularly engage in plant medicine ceremonies? Do you travel there a lot? How do you use it on an ongoing basis? So, I mean, I've spent a fair bit of
1: time studying that specific plant in the jungle, mostly in Peru. And it's a bit of an odd experience for me, given the popularity of it, because the Western understanding of it is generally far from the indigenous usage. Um, And I think part of what I lament is that, to some extent, Amazonian plant medicine and shamanism is basically equivalent to ayahuasca in the modern perception. Whereas in indigenous perception, it is a specific tool they use mostly for patient diagnosis. So for a lot of the tribes, traditionally, only the healers drink ayahuasca. The patients don't because they believe that it's... Too chaotic to navigate and actually not productive for your normal patient. so it's a very specific use for a lot of these cultures uh, yeah that has gotten translated um, maybe for better sometimes, maybe for worse other times in a whole different world. So you know for me, I, I do find use and do spend time with some of the healers who I still study with down in Peru. My interest is doing more of um, more of the deeper study with other plants. you know I think there's so many other of these what they call teacher plants. Um, plants that they do these very strict fasting rituals with that help fortify the body and the mind. And they say have spiritual teachings sort of encoded in them. And I found that through a lot of those more prolonged, you know, multi-week long rituals with lots of fasting and lots of meditation that, that, that system has provided the most for me. Um, I think just going to drink ayahuasca once or a couple of days has been very helpful for me in different points, but at least at this stage, I'm much more interested in the the practice of these dietas, which I think are a sort of under, under acknowledged but really fundamental part of Amazonian medicine.
0: Mm. And how does it? You know, you're connecting it with entrepreneurship in a way. Modern problems. How does the Amazonian uh, in the jungle, like what kind of problems are they dealing with? Like how does it translate over to our modern day problems?
1: So if you think about where these practices came from, there's basically two origins. Um, The first is hunting. So these are traditions that were designed of how do these communities and how do these people navigate the chaotic environment of the rainforest, the most lethal physical ecosystem on the planet, and how do they use what I would call subtle perception techniques. So how do they get their perception to be so acute that they can track the faintest smells, the faintest sounds? the lightest intuitions and combinations of perceptions coming through to feed their families. So it comes from the most basic need state that we can imagine. And then related to that is medicine. So when someone's sick or injured, how do they then use an understanding of the rainforest and their resources around them to heal? So in entrepreneurship, where you're playing a survival game for at least the early days of it, it's, it's very it is parallel. Like hunting. And practically one of the I mean, there's different kind of sets of tools, but there's something I, I talk a lot about is this idea of what I call clearing your filters. And there's a lot in the Amazonian practices around um, how do you sort of separate from forms of um, ingesting information that can be more chaotic and sort of gross, and then really tune into the subtle. So specifically, the fasting rituals are a great example where. You don't eat salt. You don't eat sugar. You don't eat spicy foods. You eat very specific limited bland foods and you spend lots of time in isolation. So I talk about it like going from a sort of ingestion mode to more of a digestion mode. And we think about especially up here where we're ingesting media YouTube and relationships and move just so much ingestion that it's, it's an intentional process of saying, I'm going to separate from that and I'm going to focus, I'm going to let things digest And rather than even physically, salt, sugar, super fatty foods, super heavy foods, eat bland, simple foods for a long period of time. Which even from the most perceptual way, the way that food tastes not eating salt for a few weeks is completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, So that simple practice then allows them to connect with their dreams and pay attention to their dreams and intuitions much more clearly because they're not having all the external...
0: Like their actual sleeping dreams.
1: Actual sleeping dreams. And then also just general intuitions and feelings. I find that for me during these rituals there's just a lot of time and space. So as I'm reflecting on things that made my daily life, I might've thought somewhere, oh, my relationship with Sam doesn't really feel good. Then sitting with it, I can really feel it's like, oh, I can feel this resentment that I have. And I can feel this and see that it's just giving that space for those feelings, those emotions, those knowings, those curiosities to sort of come forward in much more vivid clarity. When again, we sort of take out the ingestion and focus on the processing and subtle attunement. So Connecting that to business, it's critical for how at least I operate as a business person. I find that when I'm overloaded with inputs, not taking time to sort of clear my mind, understand the level playing field, even basic things that we all a lot of us do all the time, writing down my, my to-do list, taking 10 minutes to meditate before the day, going for a walk while I'm on a call, specific things just to make sure that my mind has a certain spaciousness and clarity. So that as I'm making those tricky decisions that there's never a perfect answer to, that I'm using the, the best version of my processing tool of my awareness, my thoughts, my mind, my
0: heart to to navigate those tricky situations. Wow, it's amazing. And it obviously has a good effect. You obviously love that.
1: Yeah, and I, I find it on a daily basis And I'm by no means perfect, but even a simple thing that I relate a lot is I'm a huge fan of waking up in the morning and taking at least 15 or 20 minutes to not look at my phone. Because I find that if I go from that sort of more vulnerable sleep dream state directly into scrolling messages and this and that, it really twists, it kind of twists my mind in a way that generally lasts for me the whole day. And so on a daily basis, whether it's a way that I relate to my wife in a way that wasn't very kind, just because I was kind of flustered and kind of caught up here, as opposed to, I'm Tyler, I have a heart, I like to relate in a certain way as best I possibly can, or other, I think a lot of us can relate to this, where something's kind of stressful and I got to send this email and then I write the email and I'm like, I'm just going to send it. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, you know, that would have been a good one to wait on. And the more that I, I just have a bit more space, my filters are clear. I find myself, I write the email and I'm about to send and I say, no, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit on that one for a day. And then five hours later, I'm like, thank God I didn't send that email. Cause that was not the most effective way to communicate what I had to say. So I find it in numerous uh,
0: expressions on a daily basis. Yeah. And I guess the the challenge would be as well as an entrepreneur, especially in the age of technology, you do have to be engaged. You have to be engaged in email. We don't have to, but you know, it's probably recommended email, Facebook, whatever online computers. So I like what you're talking about, whether this kind of coming in and coming out and creating rituals around noticing if you've been too much, in ingestion mode, uh, whatever that looks like, and then figuring out, okay, I need to create time to turn that off.
1: Yeah, The other the other way I look at it, and I think it, this piece of the puzzle often gets distorted when we start talking about spiritual things, and something I really respect from what I've seen in the Amazonian traditions is they believe in using the full toolkit. So it's not an approach that says, oh, we should all be hyper-spiritual, and that it's all about intuition and meditate seven hours a day and fully disconnect. That's not... That's not the implication at all. It's saying that as humans, we have an incredibly rich set of tools at our disposal, which range from the very analytical, we have incredible minds that can be very deductive and insightful Mm -hmm. and pick apart information, look at trends and results and use that part of our mind. And we also have these really rich intuitive faculties, which we understand more through dream and metaphor and physical expression. And the goal isn't to do one or the other, it's to find a healthy balance between the two. So... Yeah, the answer is not to say, oh, I'm just going to meditate all day and disconnect from this and just trust everything. And the answer is not to be completely consumed in the analysis, but to sort of find those ways to have the flexibility, to have the wherewithal to be able to balance both and use both depending on what the situation calls for.
0: Yeah, discipline. The um, presence meet is something that we created on the the sailing trip last week, which was that environment we, we got everyone to turn their phones off on day one, you know, nice. for the week. So no phones. Yeah yeah so you're halfway there like in 2018 if you can get people to turn their phones off for a week you're halfway no,
1: there. You're, i think you're there i think that you yeah. for periods of time is a is a big one
0: yeah but just watching the state which people you know went into over the week very we're still sailing a boat so still very active physically but very serene very reflective very meditative more connected to emotions yeah and uh yeah, I resonate that with that myself as well. Like when I'm on my phone, I'm really in problem solving or just active thing. Um, whereas, yeah, a few days off my phone or off my laptop and just in uh, you know, away from all of that, I notice different parts of my brain are activated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think then there's, you know, the game's always for me. Then what are when I don't have all the space, when I can't just go to Peru for a month at a time, like what are little things I can do to just kind of trigger it. I find that for me, like going for walks during my day on my phone calls, just moving my body helps a lot. I find that um, even specific physical movements, like if I'm doing anything in my abs, like whether it's um, like even just like a quick set of abs for two minutes or like really like just stretching out my, my abdomen like wake up, sometimes like in hotel rooms where I don't sleep well and I'm jet lagged and whatnot in some of the yoga practices they'll take they'll like roll up a like a towel or something and then lie on it face down which basically puts this pretty intense pressure right on your guts but something about that i find like causes that swirl from a pretty intense physical place that pretty quickly can take me from like groggy delirious woke up in a hotel room in detroit need to go to a meeting to like part of my part of my broader wherewithal just sort of kicks forward so Fun ways to play around with
0: it, yeah. But I hear get back into the body. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, I want to hear more about your entrepreneurial journey because you're on the Forbes 30 Under 30 Entrepreneur list. Uh, started and now sold some companies. What have you learned about entrepreneurship?
1: It's a lot questions like that. Where like it's such, it's like the question, and then it always makes my head spin a certain way because. Well, for me particularly, like I was 23 when I started my business. So, in so many ways, what I've learned about entrepreneurship is both what I've learned about myself and what I've learned about life. Mm-hmm. And I think generally, like we undervalue how much any entrepreneurial journey is just as much about what we learn about ourselves at our edges than what we're actually building in the 3D world.
0: Good reminder. But uh, well, what's the, what's a better question to ask you?
1: No, it's a good question. I mean, if, if I like distill my thoughts on entrepreneurship. I would go back and quickly to what I said before that I box occasionally and intermittently, but entrepreneurship, it's a full contact sport. Like the sport of entrepreneurship is one where you're stepping in the ring and you're going to get punched in the face. And I think that's something that I probably learned the hard way of just recognizing the game that I was playing. I think for me, entrepreneurship is that balance of a lot of our success with Runa, with the company I started out of college. Was being the guys who were willing to work 20 hours a day and be somewhat maniacal about just doing every single thing every hour to make it work. And we sort of knew that we, I mean, we didn't know Jack about what we were doing. My degree was in literary arts and my business partner's was in marine biology. So starting a tea company in the Amazon and launching energy drinks wasn't really familiar to us. But we figured that if we could just sort of make our wheel spin really fast, even if it wasn't touching the ground, whenever it even just got a second attraction,
0: we would get these. These jolts forward. And what was the What drew you to that idea? Was it you saw a gap in the market? You were interested in that kind of thing?
1: Um, I mean, for us, it was the it was the passion and the mission. We wanted to find ways to help these communities in Ecuador, and we really believe that um, creating income is really the trigger. These are communities that really struggle with how they have one foot in both worlds. You know, they live in native communities, mostly speak their native languages, and also want to send their kids to school. And if someone breaks their leg. You know, Plants can be great for healing some things, but broken legs aren't really one of them. So things like emergency medicine are also really needed. Um, mm. So we believe, and the research supports this, that if you can provide sustained economic income sources for communities, that that's the main trigger for which they can support their families and, and lift their communities up. Yeah, and this leaf in particular we fell in love with, uh, the leaf called guayusa. It's a native tea leaf that grows in this one sliver of the upper Amazon near the Andes, And it's very caffeinated. It's one of the most caffeinated plants on earth that um, is also rich in antioxidants. So it gives you a unique kind of energy. Personally, I'm super sensitive to caffeine coffee and Red Bull make me pretty batty, but, uh, but drinking Guayusa, um, I always felt like a certain lightness and a certain focus that I didn't get from other caffeinated products. And with the business, we recognized that no one had ever commercially produced Guayusa. So We had the opportunity to design this entire supply chain for this ingredient using the best principles that we knew. So making the entire supply chain dependent on individual family farms, uh, growing the trees in the rainforest to then create an economic incentive to conserve the the rainforest and to really do this in a way that could create as much impact as possible.
0: So that's awesome. Did you you research like a lot of other models that were being used, similar models?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, We researched. Uh, well, so we're a hybrid organization, half for-profit, half nonprofit. So, sort of researched different businesses and nonprofits on both sides of it. On the nonprofit side, there are great organizations like Sustainable Harvest International that does a lot of work uh, with farming families and communities. On the business side, businesses like Sambazon is one of the main producers of acai, the like purple mm-hmm. berries uh, that come from Brazil. So, we um, we took what we call the liberal arts approach to business, which essentially meant we didn't know anything about business, but we knew how to act like students, so we talked to anyone and everyone who would give us five minutes or an hour, um, and just try to take a, a pretty honest approach to learning how to put the pieces in place.
0: Mm, awesome! And where did that business lead to?
1: So uh, built a business into you know multi multi million dollar business. Uh, recently sold it to Vitacoco, the very large uh, global coconut water company. Uh, we create several hundred thousand dollars of direct cash income uh, for the communities every year. About three thousand families, amazing. About one point two million trees, and uh, perfect by no stretch, and you know problematic <laughs> in its own ways. But um, but I think a good example of what can be done at this intersection of successful business that is really driven by the goal of supporting farming families.
0: Yeah, so awesome, man. Well done. I Thank love you. That story. It's been a crazy yeah. ride yeah um evolved enterprise like that's the phrase that i've heard you know creating evolved enterprises uh ones that are more connected to i don't know if you've heard of yannick silver but he has a book called evolved enterprise i was just reading it recently he doesn't like the phrase giving back because in a way it assumes that you've taken something yeah, either yeah. from the people or the community and then you give back to them so how do we create evolved enterprises Is that at their core by their nature just support people on the planet 100
1: um, percent. yeah i I love that. And I talk about that same thought through this idea that um, I think corporate social responsibility has a big role. I think every company Mm -hmm. should be doing whatever they can to use recycled paper, donate some books, like whatever they can do to create a little bit of good. That's phenomenal. And we need more of it. And there's a line for me, which is there's sort of charity and and corporate social responsibility tacked onto a business. And then there's businesses in their core operation of doing business create good. So for us, as at least one example of that, our business of buying tea leaves, putting them in drinks and selling them through the Runa brand, we buy those leaves for farmers and create meaningful direct cash income for farming families. So our business doesn't exist without buying those leaves from the farmers. So essentially, the impact is embedded into the very operation. It's not a story we tell. It's not a one-off marketing campaign. It's designed in the structure of how we operate to the point, actually, at which in a lot of our consumer marketing, we don't really talk about the sustainability because for us, we sell our main product is what's called a clean energy drink. So it's an energy drink, we say, made from a leaf, not a lab. That's a great tasting, very effective, all-natural energy drink that provides great energy, 10 a.m., 2 p.m., as an alternative to a Red Bull, which from the consumer perspective is a pretty compelling proposition, as opposed to people often like the fact that it's organic and comes from Ecuador and all that, but it's not really our strongest card. So for us, our goal is we need to sell as much product as we can through a great brand and a great product because we know that we're creating the impact no matter what we do, whether or not the consumer is familiar with the impact
0: or not. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that's cool. What have you learned from that process that might help like other people that are starting up? That's a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with. You know, how do, you, how do you bring this philosophy in early?
1: Yeah. So the big guidance for me is I think there's a big trend, especially as this stuff becomes more popular, that we want to just look outside for how we should define our mission and say, oh, this company is doing X, Y, or Z, or this company does a one-for-one model and we should do something like that. For mm-hmm. me, it's all about what does the core, what's at the core of why that business exists, and who the people are. Whether it's one entrepreneur, a founding team, what do they really care about? So it's not, oh, well, it's you know, sustainable recycling is really trending right now, so we should do something with recycling of our materials.
0: Right, it's it's like, easy you know to what? fall into that trap. It's
1: trip. like I really care about. I'm making it up, like prison reform, and like that drives my life and what I care about, and I want to find a way to bring that into what we do as a business, because that's my deepest taproot of passion and personal concern for the world. Or, so that's one example of that personal passion. The other is just bringing it into your actual operation. So saying, you know, my main impact is I employ 100 people, so rather than saying I can donate money over there, can you create better benefits for your employees? Can you find ways to make them more engaged? How can you actually take what you do as a business and layer the impact there as opposed to outside? I think it's like a lot of kind of basic personal growth wisdom of trying to do things outside where you're not really doing the work inside often Mm -hmm. doesn't work. So applying that same thought process to our own businesses can go pretty far.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. There's another example in that book where the company just sells fudge brownies. And their philosophy is we don't hire people to sell brownies. We sell brownies so we can hire people.
1: Mm, Love that.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I thought that was like a really cool cool way to describe it. The
1: other thing that I'm really big on just on that note is any people understanding what exactly they're doing is important. And I think the idea of mission can get really convoluted. So for me, like ultimately even Runa, for example, we had a mission, but we were a for-profit company. So ultimately like brass tacks, like no, no BS. Our mission was to sell products to make money for our investors. Like when I, when I strip away everything else, It's a for-profit company that raised investment capital that absolutely was doing it in the best way possible. However, most fundamentally there was a profit motive. Absolutely. We also had a nonprofit that had no profit motive and is on the other side, but thinking big picture, it's kind of BS to say that our exclusive mission was to help farmers because if it was, then we should take every single cent we've ever made and give it all to farmers, which wasn't the structure of our business. So I think people being very honest about what they're actually doing is critical. And I think there's so much overinflation of claims that I think we've even been guilty of in certain ways that saying, no, you know what, I'm a business. I'm here to do business the right way. I'm here to make money for my people, whether it's shareholders, treat my employees well. And we're trying to do these three things that help the world in a good way. And we know exactly what we're willing to do, what we're not. We're not trying to overinflate that we're saving the world or making claims that we're impacting more people than we are, just being very honest about, hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's my business. And I know I can create more impact in a small way or a big way exactly by doing this.
0: Yeah, acknowledging the fact that remaining in business is the best way to help people in the long term. Yeah, actually keeping the business profitable. is a word for an airline, a lot of airlines. And uh, I remember someone saying the safest airline is a profitable airline. Yeah, I totally. <laughs> when, you're, when you're profitable, you pay everybody the right things. You focus on safety, you do the right maintenance. And I think the same thing applies, right? Profitable company is one that is able to help people consistently. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, is the triple bottom line thing. Is that still relevant? Is mm-hmm. it a similar conversation?
1: I think so. Um, and I think it's just being honest about where the different pieces come in, because I think it, I think talking in grandiose ways about maybe the social and environmental benefits can actually then undermine the real impact. Because I think we feel, so oh, we're all about X, Y, or Z, but then internally the employees are like, we're actually not because I know that we do the three other things that aren't in line with that because we don't think we can afford it or we don't think it matters. Of mm-hmm. saying, no, no, we're a business. We got to exist. We got to do these things. And we're trying to, you know, we're picking these three things to go a bit beyond what we would do if we only cared about profit. That's great. That's very honest as opposed to, we're going to save the Amazon. Like we as a business are going to save all the native people and do all the things. It's like, it sounds, it can sound grandiose and inspiring. And it's also like kind of pompous and actually deflates the stuff that we do, which is creating a little bit of help for a much bigger problem.
0: Yeah. No, I really like that. I really like that distinction. What's next for you? I know you got a baby on the way. Congratulations. That's probably going to tie up a lot of your time. But what's next? Like if you're looking at new business opportunities, you want to get into investing? Is there a way that you want to approach uh, the next phase or the way that you're looking at it?
1: A bit of all of it. I spend a fair bit of time with uh, Runa Foundation, with the nonprofit that we started. We're trying to cool. spend some businesses out of the foundation um, and doing a lot with this experience of how do we take new products that these farmers can grow and then introduce them to the market. So just finding other ways to diversify the farmer's income stream and then offer a lot of these incredible products that have never reached the market. Um, we're going to be launching uh, native Amazonian cinnamon as a new ingredient, which has never come to market. We've been helping export native Amazonian peanuts, working with some women cooperatives up in the mountains in Ecuador that produce a really awesome variety of mezcal using some native native Andean blue agave varieties. So just trying to use this experience we have in a lot of this toolkit to um, help more communities and showcase the brilliance and and uh, diversity of these resources.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, it, on, the, uh, on the surface, it seems quite intimidating. Like, how would you go into these countries and create these things and meet the farmers and all that sort of stuff? But I guess it, it probably just came one step at a time for you. you. Just figured it out one thing at a time.
1: One thing at a time. I mean, we have a very collaborative model. And I think that's where So one of my philosophies with business and our work in particular is that it's never going to be perfect. Mm. You know, we're doing tricky stuff. We're working with native communities around traditional plants with a lot of traditional knowledge. That's part of biodiversity conservation and working with the governments around their development agendas and conservation priorities. And that invariably it's imperfect. We are going to disappoint people. We're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. We're going to do some things that are never going to make everybody happy. However, the alternative is not to do it and either be on the like, oh, no, no, it's all about development. We should just do oil and mining and that game or no, no, we have to just be pure conservationists and keep the rainforest intact and save the rainforest and the rest of that stuff is bad. And we're trying to be in the middle. We're trying to say that, just like you said, profitable, sustainable businesses are a really solid pillar to create an actual future that has that can support people and the environment together and unite those goals. Um, And then we have to be willing to compromise and and tread some tricky lines of these communities that aren't really that familiar with globalized economics, um, but do depend on money now and will continue to for sure. So, yeah, I think that excites me. Like I like doing that work where Mm. it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of, I think, willingness to work across boundaries and that uh, is rife with, with problems I like. I guess that's my entrepreneurial instinct is I like things that are, are ripe with uh, with issues and potential issues.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I've got a lot out of this. You know, One is uh, that entrepreneurship is inherently a battle that you don't expect to have a clear path going and uh, expect to get punched in the face. Uh, two is to find time and space, get back in the body and create that space to process things in a different way and really feel what's important to you. And then... Three, just this idea that how I would say it is just do the best with what you've got, mm. you know, uh, find out what's important to you and then do your best to impact that as best you can around your business.
1: I think that, that's spot on. Thanks for distilling my uh, my circuitous <laughs> connection awesome. in such a pointed way. I appreciate it.
0: Is there it. anything else uh, for the entrepreneurs that are listening? Is there anything else you want to share? Anything that uh, you would love them to know that might help them going forward?
1: Let me just summarize some of that too. Um, I think these ideas of passion and purpose can be misleading. And I think just following simple curiosities, so things that have some interest or something that might seem totally irrelevant or tangential, it's all about laying down the path as you walk and turning one corner and looking there might lead to something else. Um, And it's very rare. I think people are like, oh, well, I have these ideas, but they're not totally clear. You know, this new product line I want to launch, but I don't really know. Try it take a little bit down that road, it's probably going to turn somewhere else. You can likely bet on it. However, that is, that is the path. And I heard a quote recently, you know, Penn and Teller, the magicians. Mm. So uh, I heard this quote by Teller, this amazing story about this trick he was working on, saying that this, um, this trick he ultimately came up with after five years of practice, he said it was the trick that was calling to him, but it wasn't the trick he thought he would do. And I like that idea. There are these things from deeper parts of ourself and life that sort of call us, in ways they get ricocheted around and make us think it's going to be something, but it's really just a certain thread to to get us to what that ultimate thing is. So not to be intimidated by uncertainty, um, and not to be intimidated by um, not knowing where things are going to go.
0: Yeah, that's great. That, that's my work as you know, like I work with a lot of new entrepreneurs or people that are transitioning into entrepreneurship. And that's the thing I'm always trying to get across to them is uh, listen for the whispers, you know, mm. figure out because I think it can be frustrating, especially if you've worked for a company and you're used to making progress in your day to day job, and then suddenly it's about just sitting, being, listening for whispers, trying to figure out what's important to you. Uh, patience can be the hardest thing to cultivate, mm-hmm. but that yeah, ultimately that's where the insights come from, and then yep. just start following them and expect to pivot multiple times.
1: Absolutely, listening to whispers. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna relay that along. That's great.
0: Steal that one. Um, Tyler, thanks for coming on. If people want to uh, reach out to you or talk to you or hire you to come and speak, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, Just my website, tylergage.com, T y l e r g a
1: g e. People can reach out and holler through there. And yeah, thank you so much for the great conversation and for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. The last thing I ask everybody is about your dark side, just because it's not something we usually talk about and I like to... um, to dig a little bit deeper but do you have a dark side that you have to watch out for and how do you embrace it
1: 100 percent, yeah in the sort of shamanic language i talk about it like the shadow yeah um, which i think is, is a inevitable inescapable part of life so for me for me there's a few elements to it impatience is definitely part of it um, which i think comes from insecurity and not being right in myself so practically that insecurity and patience dynamic has caused me Many issues, um, without a doubt. I think the other one I, I watch out for in my own tendencies is I'm a storyteller. Like I'm, that's part of what I think I'm good at is how do I how do I take information and make it understandable and relatable to people who it might be really esoteric to. And that's something which, in any translation process, you're adapting and making things fit across lines and across ways of understanding. And I think I noticed when I look back at certain things when I was in particularly really hardcore entrepreneur mode, where I was just desperate to make things work, the amount of liberty I might have taken to make things seem a certain way. And I think as entrepreneurs, we do this a lot of the, uh, hey, man, how's it going? Ah, oh, just crushing it. Everything's great. Or, oh, how's this? Oh, yeah, it's great. We're doing this. When in reality, not always like that. And I noticed my tendency just to be like this kind of animal response of how do I how do I tell this story in a way that's going to seem the best or make me look right. the best or get this person to do the thing that I want them to do, as opposed to just giving them the most honest read of the situation and then letting them make their own honest decision. So it's something that is requires attention. I would say definitely requires attention. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm guessing that people who are in the entrepreneurial seat can relate to that. I mean, all of us too. I think it's very human of the like, Hey man, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. I'm really good.
0: It's- yeah, totally. It's the, the whole conversation around vulnerability. And uh, yeah, I think especially if you've given up something or you're trying trying your business out as a new thing, the last thing you want to say is, no, I've completely failed. This was a horrible idea and it's not working how I wanted it to work. So That's- yeah, you try to spin it a different way. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Tyler. That's cool.
1: Great question. I, I love that you ask people that.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. It's come- there's been some good answers over the last few years. Thanks very much. I appreciate you coming on. I love, uh, you know, talking to any serial entrepreneur. so much fun. And then just to have this aspect of uh, working in South America and bringing some some different things into it. I just appreciate your insights so much.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate the conversation. I so respect everything you're doing and look forward to hearing from people.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks for uh, tuning in. As always, check out Tyler's website, tylergage.com. And if you like the episode, Please share it around, give it a like, leave some comments, and I will love you guys forever. And I will be back next week with episode number 67.
1: That was The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live
0: an extraordinary life.